This is Top Floor, Episode 1. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash one. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. On Top Floor, we talk to experts and characters in hospitality to help figure out the best way to tell your story. I am your elevator operator and host, Susan Berry. And this week, we are riding to the top floor with Kat Meek. Kat is not only a famous sommelier, a restaurant owner, and a real estate mogul, but she's also my sister. Kat is here to talk to us about how she leveraged a mom-and-pop restaurant into multiple locations, including a catering company and a popular food truck. Kat, thanks for being here. No, no, no. go on, go on. (laughs) (laughs) That was a nice introduction. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I'm glad you're here. Before we get started, we're going to answer the call button. So just as a reminder, our call button is an emergency hotline for marketing disasters that you're facing in your business. So for today's call, we have Ashley who asks, what do we do if it's the Friday before Father's Day and we have nothing planned to drive customers to our Father's Day brunch? I'm going to invite our guest, Kat Meek, to help me answer this. But first, I'll throw out an idea that I have, which is, Ashley, you're out of luck. It's too late to start promoting Father's Day on the Friday before Father's Day. So what I would recommend that you do is get a calendar and plan out a date six months in advance of every holiday that you want to promote and put that on your calendar. So if you're interested in doing a promotion for Father's Day, you need to start talking about that in December or January. What do you think, Kat? Anything you'd add? I think Ashley's got this. I think she can get on some social media because I bet that there are, I don't know, 50% of the people that don't even realize that it's going to be Father's Day this Sunday. So they might need the reminder. (laughs) So I think Ashley should get on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, get all of her staff to do the same, come up with the promotion for dad. I don't know if it's cliche to do like a free beer or something like that, but I think she could come up with something to bring dad in. (laughs) That is a fantastic idea. I love it. And thank you for jumping in to help with the call button. I'd really like to start with an overview of your background. Can you tell us, I don't know, what was your first job in hospitality? Well, as you well know, um, I grew up in a beach town. So we're talking tourist central. Hospitality is basically the job everybody has here. Whether you work in food service or a hotel or beach service, which I've done it all. Um, But I started as a hostess at a restaurant and continued that path for, gosh, through high school. Got moved up to a server, which was a big deal at the time. (laughs) Did a little beach service, then uh, went off to college in, in Tallahassee where... 
I continued. I was like, okay, I need a job. Where will I go? Ah, restaurants. I already have that on my resume. It's easy. It's so funny when I was preparing for this conversation, I'm like, okay, we work together here. We work together here. I forgot that we work together at home too. So we work together at three different restaurants or four? I think it's three. Uh, Sweet Basil's, Andrew's, where else? Oh, uh, Scales and Tails. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, forgot about exactly. that. Oh yeah. In fact, the only reason I got a job to begin with at age 15 is because you already worked there and I could get a, a ride. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after we stopped working together, where did you go? So then I went to like what I consider to be a very fancy restaurant. So I was downtown Tallahassee. So we had like all these legislators and the governor and all these like really important people. And I worked in a little restaurant that did tableside cookery. And so I did Steak Diane and Bananas Foster and Caesar Salads and all of that tableside. And also started learning about wine. And so I'm like, okay, this is it. I can have a job where I get to drink wine <laughs> and get paid for it and then talk about it and cook food for people and and make money and you know so I was sold on hospitality at that point so anyways fast forward I'm done with college so then I moved to Charleston I work fine dining there at like super famous restaurants under like James Beard award winning chefs and like working with professional servers not just other college kids I mean it was it really really sealed the deal for me. And I was like, this is it. I'm going to own a fine dining restaurant one day. And um, in Charleston also, side note, Johnson and Wales Culinary School was there. It's not, not there any longer. But so there's tons of students in the culinary world. And I happened to fall in love with one of those. He was a cook. <laughs> I was a server. And we've been together for 21 years now. But that's what brought us together was our love of the industry, you know? So I uh, was super lucky and rose in the ranks at this company there. And I'm like 23 years old, managing like 40-year-old professional servers, you know, and I'm like telling what to do and, oh, no, you need to straighten your fork or polish your glass. <laughs> and like, I'm in charge or something. It's like, who is this kid? <laughs> I know. And of course, of course, they made like quadruple the amount of money I did because there's way more money in serving than there is in managing. But... Hey, I was in charge. Cool. I think we both had that experience of really wanting to advance our careers and yeah. really wanting to be the boss to our own financial detriment yes. at a certain point. <laughs> I know yeah. that I did. Well, definitely because, you know, I wanted to learn every aspect of the business. And so I had already been a cook at this random job in Tallahassee. I was a server. I had done all of the things. So as a manager, I wanted to learn like on somebody else's dime, you know, <laughs> the mistakes and things like that and what to do and what not to do. And um, is okay. Charleston where you decided that you wanted to own your own restaurant or had you decided that earlier? I had already decided that. I inherently knew I wanted to do it. But when Mike, my husband and I got together, we would dream about it and talk about it when we first started dating. It, it was a shared desire. We had... I think this is even before we were engaged. We had already written a business plan for our fine dining restaurant. I don't think I knew that. That's yes, crazy. I know. I wonder if I still have it. Probably not because it's probably like on a floppy disk or something somewhere. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it was a serious, serious, serious thing that I, we both wanted to do. So thank goodness we both wanted to do it. So we left Charleston 
went to Denver because you were there mm-hmm. and we wanted to go snowboarding and be like mountain people and do something cool and have an adventure. And this was after you were married, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we got married while we we're in Charleston. Oh, and I got my sommelier uh, certification in Charleston as well, which was a big deal for me and something I'd been working towards for a while, just through all the love of wine and everything. So then we went out to Denver, mooched off of you for a couple months. And then we both found jobs. We worked, then he and I were a working team where you and I were before. I guess I just can't work alone. (laughs) So we both worked at the Denver Country Club. I was the sommelier there. He was a cook. Then we went to a place called Brasserie Rouge where I met another award-winning, amazing chef named John Broning, who just, I mean, the things he came up with, they'd blow your mind. So, um, I left Brasserie Rouge and then I was like, okay, there's another aspect of this that I haven't done yet. And I started being a wine salesperson. (laughs) I forgot about that. And it's just one of those things that I, it was another aspect. I needed to know the vendor side of it. I wanted to know every side of everything before I did anything on my own, us on our own. I don't mean to sound like I did it all certainly, but, um, so I did that for a little while. And then John Burning calls me and says, Kat. I've got this gig. I want you to come with me. Let's do this. There's a guy who makes, he's like, he serves sandwiches and he makes granola and he's getting ready to open a restaurant and he needs help. So it's not like what we've done before. I mean, he's this like fine dining guy, you know, chef John Burning. I was so flattered and I'm like, of course I'll do it. Yes, 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 yes. So we went to work for um, Udi. So I knew him as Udi at the time. You know him as when you go shopping and see gluten-free bread, it's that Udi. I so, never uh, am not get a little thrill. Every time I see I those products, I'm like, I remember when. <laughs> I know. Well, so at that time, okay, so it was in this um, really big warehouse and it was like a uh, little restaurant we were helping him open. So on the side, he's got this whole granola operation going on. It's not nationwide yet. It's just getting started. So I'm kind of like, who is this guy and what is happening? It was really cool. And then there's this chef in the middle. Um, He's a bread baker. All I remember is year round in Colorado, he only ever wore shorts and sandals while he baked, which was, I thought kind of weird, but hey, it worked for him. (laughs) I remember a conversation overhearing Udi telling him, I want to develop a gluten-free bread. Gluten-free was kind of coming more... We were all becoming more aware of that as consumers and also as purveyors and, and whatnot. But he was kind of cutting edge, right? So here he is now, like I said, a household name. So this little restaurant within this bakery is what I was hired to help open. And I ended up helping open another restaurant. But it was a fast casual order at the counter. We give you a number, bring it out. But of course, Chef Browning is serving it on, you know, real plates, not like these boxes and things. And we're doing like uh, super unique sandwiches, not just ham and cheese on a rye or whatever. So um, I was like, this is cool. I like this. This Mm -hmm. is fun. And this is cool. So anyways, that's kind of when Mike and I started thinking because we found out while I'm working there that I was pregnant. And we're like, okay, this is not going to work being in Colorado. We need to go back closer to our families. So we did, we made a plan. I still work. I opened two restaurants while pregnant. And um, 
our daughter Liza was born. And two months later, I was back in Panama City. This is after I read an ad in the newspaper. We did have the internet then, just just barely, <laughs> I swear. Um, it, was, it was one of those, like, have you ever uh, dreamed of owning your own restaurant in Panama City and blah, 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 blah. Mike jumps on an airplane, goes and sees the space. We come back, pull together all of our savings, send a check. Two months later, we're there. Oh my gosh. Every time I think back about this story, like at the time, it definitely seemed crazy that you guys moved cross country and had a baby and opened a restaurant within like four months of each other. But now, can you imagine? Like, how do you... I don't even know how you guys did that. Because we were young. (laughs) And, And it was exciting and it was so fun and great and... I wouldn't change any of it. So what kind of a restaurant did you open when you moved back to Panama City? So we did kind of a a hybrid of what um, I had just helped open for Udi. It was uh, fast casual, but we also did brunch. So we elevated it to a little bit higher level. What I like to call it is it was kind of like fine dining between bread. So we made our own (laughs) breads as well. But, you know, we, we did really, really unique creations for our sandwiches. So if you already had a business plan written for a fine dining restaurant and you ended up with a fast casual sandwich shop, talk a little bit about what that shift was like. What made you make that move or that change? So we made the change because we realized with a baby that working in a fine dining restaurant and getting off at midnight just wasn't going to work if we were ever to know our baby and our child. <laughs> and so um, the after working and seeing how cool it could be to do with Udi's, we were like, okay, we can do a version of that and still have a taste of the fine dining. So what were some of the things that you did to market your new restaurant? And tell everyone what its name was. So the name was and is uh, Liza's <laughs> Kitchen. Um, we named it obviously after our daughter Liza. <laughs> and because we moved back to our my hometown, such a small town, we were really, really lucky in the very beginning that we had a lot of word of mouth advertising. And I'll never forget dad going around to all these businesses and all these random, like even gas stations and dropping off menus. And he's like, my daughter's opened a restaurant. It's the greatest thing ever. I don't think I knew that he did that. That's cool. Oh my God. Of course he did. It's dad. I mean, he was amazing. (laughs) And, um, you know, with all just knowing a lot of people and then it sort of evolved into, we got on this map. It's a, uh, like a destination map. You know, when you go to the hotel desk and you see like here, this is where this restaurant is and this attraction and that attraction. So that's the very first bit of advertising that we did. And so those are pretty analog sounding channels, like pretty, you know, sort of old school activities. How long ago was this? So uh, we opened in 2006. Oh, okay. So probably mostly before social media. Yes. Yes. In fact, okay. uh, yeah, I my, there was MySpace and we had a MySpace. You <laughs> did? Yes. I, I didn't know. know that. I don't even know how to log into it anymore, but we did have one. Oh, that's amazing. I don't even think I knew one that. One of our employees. 
set it up for us. Oh, awesome. So while you were opening this restaurant, I was opening a hotel. So I was a little bit out of the loop on the early years of Liza's Kitchen. Right. Anything else that was particularly successful besides the menu drops, word of mouth, and the destination map? Well, we ended up being on... There's a local network here. Uh, it's called Beach TV. So when you check into any hotel, it's the first channel that's on, like so many cities have. And we did advertising on there. And that really drove the most business for us because everybody, even locals watch it. It's one of those things and you get ideas and we were on quite a bit. They took a liking to us and had us on a lot of segments and we were really fortunate with that. Oh, another thing that actually worked out really well for us is the uh, TDC, the the Tourism Development Council. We've got a pretty good relationship with them. And so when there would be travel writers and things like that, that would come to town, they would commonly come and um, have some lunch with us. And when we were lucky, they would write, you know, little clips about us and feature certain items. And we actually then got into Southern Living in that same way. And they featured our signature sandwich at the time. And um, so some of the print stuff too, again, it's really analog, but that's, it worked. That makes a lot of sense. It sounds to me like you were sort of able to leverage existing relationships that you had in the community, but also that there was something about you and about Mike that made people root for you. And they were on your side and wanted you guys to be successful. Does that feel accurate? Oh my gosh, 100%. In fact, everybody felt invested and they felt like they were part of something. So we actually had the biggest compliment in the world given to us by a former guest and uh, her son loved to come eat at Liza's Kitchen. So we had to do a project in college about culture and things like that and how certain things create a culture, not just a product. And he used us. We were the project. So he said that when you would go eat at Liza's Kitchen, it wasn't just eating at the restaurant you like transported into this whole scene, this whole vibe, you know, we got the stickers everywhere. We had this like kind of a hippie vibe. And, um, he even said how, you know, everybody, it didn't matter your age. You felt like you belonged. Um, you, you either felt like you were paying for Liza's college fund, which a lot of people would say that (laughs) they would drop money in the tip jar and say, this is for Liza's college or nice. Right. Exactly. Or they felt like, it was their music that was playing their kind of music or it was they known me since I was five years old or you know there's so many different elements. do you think that culture piece do you think that it was I, I'm not sure I'm going to ask this question completely articulately but like as you if, when you think back to that time when you were opening there probably weren't a lot of other restaurants or places to go in the area where people wore tie-dye or where there were bumper stickers on the cooler. Do you think that it was the fact that you were different than what was on the existing landscape? Or do you think it was that particular culture? I think it's that we were different. We were progressive. We had uh, ingredients on our menu that people weren't used to in our area. I think there's an important lesson to draw from that, which is, you know, sort of this idea that if you can create something appealing that's unlike anything else that you Mm -hmm. compete with, it doesn't just feel like another 
business choice, it feels like a home for people who don't have a home yet. So year five, you start expanding into snack shops. And these were unique restaurants in that they were only accessible by the people who were guests at the condo buildings where they were located. So can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? It was, and still is, the very first one, the condominium, they came to us and they said, we need this. Would you be interested? And we were like, yes, yes, (laughs) we'd be interested. And this is amazing. Um, And so it, it was a big departure from what we had been doing. We knew we had to be very creative with our space and our menu. And not only that, but we didn't want everything to be as labor intensive as it was at the main restaurant. And so we kind of created a brand new business model. We did much more simple menus. So uh, we're talking nachos and burgers that were pre-cooked that we added our own little touch to. But at Liza's Kitchen, our niche was sort of that everything was homemade. So we couldn't exactly carry that on to Liza's munchies. And yeah, so you was, didn't have enough space, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, it was, it was kind of cool. Cause I mean, it was really like, re- it was a brand new business plan, a brand mm-hmm. new business model. And that to me, it seems like the snack shop model or models as it mm-hmm. were, are, are kind of two sides of a, the same coin. So on the one hand, you have a captive audience because you're the only game in town for that condo building. But on the other hand, that's the only audience that you can have. Yeah. Those are the only guests that you can serve. D- what were the things that you had to do differently in terms of attracting customers and sort of, I guess, creating a, a steady flow of business? Well, the, the number one thing was to make sure that they knew we were there. So what would break my heart and still does to this day is if somebody, it's their last day of vacation and they're like, oh my gosh, we didn't know you were here. We would have been coming all week. Um, so I know. <laughs> so typically people come Saturday to Saturday. So we would do some like incentive plans for the front desk staff where we would give them cards. So somebody could come in and get a free daiquiri from us if they came within 24 hours of checking in. So then the front desk staff would initial or whatever. And then it was it was like a contest for them. So they're basically going to get rewarded who can send us the most people, right? And oh, so, but, they, but they have to come within 24 hours of arrival so that they know that you're there from exactly, the beginning. Exactly. Oh, that's so smart. What a good idea. I know that you've had successful exits from most of those locations and have also launched a food truck pretty recently called Liza's Munchies Machine, sort of like a Scooby-Doo takeoff, which I like. I think lots of restaurants start as food trucks, but I don't know that I can think of many food trucks that start as restaurants. Can you talk about your decision-making process and what all went into the thoughts that you and Mike had about reducing the physical locations and adding a mobile location? Well, we gradually tapered off two of the condominiums first. And then um, we decided it was time to sell Liza's Kitchen because our namesake, Liza, was like, she was growing up. We had the snack shop, which I I need to mention is seasonal. So it's only March through October, the snack shop, the uh, munchies that we have now. And so that gave us basically here in Panama City Beach, you have two seasons. You have summer and you have winter. 
<laughs> summer is March through October and winter is the rest of the year. <laughs> so it gave us the winter with her and gave us family time. So it was all about quality of life. And the food truck is absolutely so much fun though, because the menu changes. It's never the same menu twice. My husband, the chef is just like chomping at the bit to get out there and flex his culinary muscles. You know? So that's sort of like his culinary lab. Like that's where he can do new things and try stuff and show off. Oh, <laughs> good point. <laughs> um, so how has spreading the word about, let me, I, actually, I should back up and say, you know, you guys are probably approaching what, 15, 16 years of being pretty well known in the community as restaurant owners. So I think your tips about spreading the word for this food truck would probably be different from somebody who was starting a food truck to earn enough money to open a restaurant. But I am interested in how that was different than attracting business to a physical location. Okay. So what we did is we started... I don't know if this is a technical term or not, but we started a whisper campaign. Mm. And um, is that a technical term? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's what we did. So we kind of were just telling friends and people that we knew that liked to be the first one to know things, if you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. The second step was we actually utilized social media the way you're supposed to. (laughs) And um, I'm still. So it wasn't on MySpace, is that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, we have a MySpace. (laughs) Um, So that really, uh, I mean, it's free. You can Mm -hmm. boost things here and there, but it's really cool when you can reach an audience in 30 seconds and they see it within a couple minutes, or you kind of get an idea of what time of day is the best time and when I'm getting the most engagement. So then I started timing posts based on that. And, it, and it's different on weekdays and weekends. So using social media, finally. Here's a really big and sort of philosophical question for you. But I think you've probably... You're almost 30 years in the restaurant business since you got started so yes. young. And I know that you've seen a lot of trends come and go, a lot of marketing channels come to life and evaporate like your MySpace page. <laughs> Looking back, what do you think are some universal rules that restaurants should follow when they're trying to find guests? For me, it's about making the guests part of the story, kind of like what we talked about in the beginning, because, you know, so many of our guests over the years have become like family and they feel like they're family because they are. Okay. So last question, what is ahead for you and for the Liza's empire? Well, uh, the Liza lab is going to keep on (laughs) rolling Rolling. the streets. (laughs) (laughs) And um, uh, we do plan on continuing that in the snack shop, but we are uh, kind of transitioning into another branch of hospitality right now. We already have one beachfront condo. We're in the process of buying some other properties to do vacation rentals. That's what's next for us. We're ready to maybe not work quite as much physically, but still be in touch with people. Going down. Okay, folks, before we go, let's head back downstairs to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. 
Kat Meek, our guest, is going to tell us one of her funniest, craziest, or just plain weirdest hospitality story experiences. So we decided to do catering as sort of a side gig for a little while and had booked many, 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 many events. I'm on my way home from one of the events and I get a phone call from a bride who says, where, where are you? When, when are you arriving? I said, um, what, excuse me? Uh, uh, um, uh, 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 what? And she said, yeah, we're waiting for food. This is so-and-so. I forgot a wedding. <laughs> oh my God. My heart is racing in my chest right now. And my only solution that I could offer because they had this really fancy menu planned was I can bring a sandwich tray. And <laughs> oh my God. She said no. And then I had to just beg and grovel and plead and obviously refund money and throw more money at him and cry. And it was horrible. I remember when that happened and it was horrible, but I think I remember saying to you, you're going to tell this as a funny story one day. And am I right? Yep. <laughs> I, and now I laugh every time I think about it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for joining me on the loading dock and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for joining us today. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash one. This episode is sponsored in part by She Has a Deal. She Has a Deal offers inspiration and education to achieve the goal of increasing the number of women hotel owners and developers. With pitch competitions for both early career and experienced women, programs channel the power of collaboration and mentorship by connecting experts and newbies, experienced investors, and hotel operations leaders. Learn more at shehasadeal.com. Top Floor is a production of Long Live Lodging. Our elevated elevator music was composed and performed by John Albano, designed by Neha Patel and Jason Lum. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode.